Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. In 1974, Ray Scott became the first African-American Coach of the Year in the National Basketball Association. Today, he joins us to share what he learned about leadership during his playing and coaching days in the NBA. We don't just discuss his role as a leader, we talk about the remarkable leaders he's been fortunate to meet throughout his life, including Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Aretha Franklin, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This isn't just a conversation about leadership, it's a conversation about hope, progress, and the work that still needs to be done. 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software, an employee-centric platform that merges impactful proven leadership and performance models with the tools, resources, and support that your people need to thrive. Learn more at inspiresoftware.com. Coach Scott, welcome to 12 Geniuses. I'm so glad to be here, although I may not be one of the geniuses, but I'm still glad to be with you. I read your book. You qualify. So let's start by talking about your background. Where did you grow up and what was life like when you were a young person? That's such a, whoo, boy, that's a powerful question. <laughs> well, I grew up in, in South Philly. I was actually, as I talk about in my book, because I think it was so historical. I was born in Frederick Douglass Hospital which was an African-American hospital at that time, or as a, which was the jargon of the time, we were Negroes at that time. The history of that means a great deal to me. But all of my early years were spent in South Philadelphia. And South Philadelphia is one of those historical parts of Philadelphia because there was so many parts. It was part Catholic, it was part Jewish, it was part Irish, and it was part Italian. And so you brought these groups together that all lived in this area. And I remember probably as a five or six-year-old just growing up in this melting pot of a neighborhood in Philadelphia, having been born at this Negro hospital. You were born in 1938, and you must remember the end of World War II, 1945, maybe not a whole lot prior to that, but America then went through a great transformation after the war. We became a superpower, and there were a lot of changes going on in the country at the time and, and throughout the 60s and into your adult life. What did you think your career or your life was going to be like? We're talking about two societies. And so when you're five, six, seven, eight years old, you begin to understand the differences, the variables that are there as you're growing up, as you're observing, as you're feeling, as you're seeing. You really, you learn quite a bit in a short amount of time because you learn through exposure. And I just remember, oh, early lessons, don't go over there, or don't speak to that person, or don't look that person in the eye. I, I remember hearing those conversations, even as a little fella. And so it was really interesting, though, because you use that element that of where America 
was rising, not from the First World War, but the Second World War, which I was aware of because we had rations at that time. And so we couldn't have sugar or rubber tires or gasoline. So it was really an interesting town, in my opinion, to grow up in because we were right on the cusp of becoming that superpower. And I still remember the going to the theaters and seeing FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, seeing Winston Churchill, seeing Stalin, these powers, these powerful men that would sit on these ships and in these meetings and talk about these very important issues, these delicate issues. And it was really dividing up a world, dividing up the earth. And that's what I recall as a young guy, is that this was going on, and like I said, in 45, I was seven years old, so I'm now eight, nine, and 10 years old, and I'm beginning to have a comprehension of this world, this constant world moving around us. The interesting thing to me is that all of this was turning and all of these sections of this country were looked upon as great. The West Coast with California, the South with Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana. And they, all of these places had rules. New York City had rules. The great Northeast, they had rules. And I, oh my goodness, it just, when you ask me those questions and I go back to that, that time, man, it's like, whoa, <laughs> it was just incredible. America, because, you know, we're, we're only 250 years old. So America was so young and we were coming into so many things and as a people. And I'm, I'm wondering now, even as we're speaking, I'm wondering about the comprehension level that folks must have had at that time with all of those differences living right on top of each other. Coach, back in 1950, you took a transformative yes. journey, I think, with your uncle. You must have been 11 or 12 at the time to Washington, D.C. Can you talk about that trip and what it meant to you and what you learned? We were all poor in these neighborhoods, but we didn't think of us as being poor because everybody was in the same dire straits. And I remember uh, my father died when I was eight years old. And my uncle Reese, who was a minister, came for the funeral. And he told us at the funeral, my brother and I, that I'm going to bring you guys down to see me in Washington, D.C. Like most things with kids, we forgot about it until he walked up one day and said, hey, your uncle Reese is here and I'm here to take you down to Washington, D.C. And this is in 1950. I'm 12 years old. And I, didn't, I knew very little of travel because everything was encapsulated in that form of South Philadelphia. And so I, it was just an adventure to get in a car with my uncle and travel south. And I'm not thinking about it at that time as a 12-year-old that I'm going south. <clears throat> but I am. I'm going south. And so as we travel this, this southern route, and remember this time, in the 50s, we were just getting into building the highway system. And 
So when you travel throughout the South back in the older days, I mean, you were in the South. So the people had come up with a book called the Green Book. And the Green Book gave us a way as African-Americans or quote-unquote Negroes to travel the South. Now, going South, I didn't have much awareness of that. I was just excited to be in a car going South. And I remember as we were traveling and we had conversations and it was jovial and it was just great going to Washington, D.C. Well, Don, I get to Washington, D.C. and I make the discovery that Washington, D.C. at 12 years of age for me is segregated. And I was like, the nation's capital is segregated. And I'm like, what is this? What does that mean? What does segregation mean? And I come to find out through various kids in the neighborhood that what that meant is that there's a division of people, the division of the population. And the rules there became quite apparent because it had black and white water fountains, or it said Negroes only, whites only, black and white bathrooms, Negro restaurants, white restaurants, or no restaurants at all for us that provided service. So I'm now I'm shocked that I'm seeing all this in the nation's capital. You went on to play college basketball at Portland, and then you were drafted by the Detroit Pistons as the number four pick to play in the NBA. And I want to talk about your leadership throughout your NBA career and then as you became a coach. How did you think about your role as a leader when you were a player? How did you see yourself as a leader? Leadership comes about through forming habits. People see you form habits, and there are people that will help you transform that dependence on good habits, and then there are people that will try to break those good habits. It's up to you to make your choices. I think that's a really good point. So you are trying to formulate these habits. And occasionally there's going to be a player who says, you know, don't go to shoot around or don't work out. Let's go have some beers and, <laughs> and try to hold you back. And you have to make a choice, right? As a young person, you have to make a choice. What's best for me? Or do I go out and follow the crowd? And oftentimes you see teammates who are like, oh, this guy, he's going to emerge and maybe he's going to take my playing time. So you have to be pretty strong in order to really formulate the positive habits. Yeah, you do. And that's, and in my opinion, the, what makes your topic so great, what makes your topic so great about leadership is that leadership is vital. It is vital. And it's vital because you want to take graduated appreciative steps in life. And you can only do that, in my opinion, through examples. And growing up in Philadelphia, particularly South Philadelphia at that time, I just remember having observations of men of the neighborhood, men that you would consider to be great men and men that you would consider to be not so great. And you'd have to make your choices 
So you bring up a really good point around observation and being in the neighborhood and seeing people you want to be like or seeing people who display certain behaviors. And that to me is mentorship. And a lot of people confuse mentorship with having a formalized relationship. You don't necessarily need a formalized relationship. And I wonder if you can talk about some other people who are mentors, maybe Earl Lloyd or other people in your life who have been mentors to you. Earl Lloyd, Earl Francis, the first man ever to play a game in the NBA. Think about that. First African-American to walk out on the floor. And he's the first guy that they say he's in the lineup. He's there. Now, think of the quality, I believe, that had to be within Earl within his mind, within his college coaches at West Virginia State University, learning things and learning how to bridge, if you will, gaps that are there in your life. How do you do this? How does Nat Sweetwater Clifton of the Harlem Globetrotters go to New York and play? He's a number one. He's a pick for the New York Knicks. And he's playing for the New York Knickerbockers, an NBA team. And I, and I said, my goodness, that must have been astounding. Or Chuck Cooper playing in Boston for the Boston Celtics. First guy in that uniform, wearing that green and white uniform. Those are things that I think and I believe when you talk about leadership, you bring the best of you. You bring the best of yourself. And that's what I'm Let me ask you that question, because I think if I was to put myself in the shoes of those three men, so they played in the NBA in 1950. I think that was their first game. That's correct. In order to perform, you need to be fully present. And basketball, I've played basketball, but not at the level you played. You want your head in the right place. How did these guys get their heads in the right place, knowing that they are pioneers, knowing that maybe the crowd is saying some of the worst horrific things to them? What do you know about that and that mindset and how you block that out? It's, it's astounding the attention you have to pay to yourself because it's, it's like the dress rehearsal. You always want to make sure that you present the best you that there is. But to get there as a 22-year-old, which you would be in 1950 as you're going into the NBA, these three African-American men, they are going to present the best of themselves. I, I remember thinking back as I was, when I was writing the book, these are examples. Now, think of these three men. They are not superstars. They are not people that the spectators want to see because they have the grace of an Elgin Baylor or a Wilt Chamberlain or a Bill Russell or an Oscar Robertson. That's not why people want to see these gentlemen. They want to see them because they are the first. They are presented. The way that those men, and that's a good point, Don, those men presented themselves in such a way that they opened up a vacuum and said, all of the things that we thought about, quote unquote, these people, it's not true. They're talented, quality, they have character. And so that 
Again, that is that element, but that is an element of leadership. But it's not the superstardom that the other four guys that I said would present because they're superstars. They fundamentally transformed the game. And I think about when I played basketball or was involved with sports, when the ball was thrown up, the jump ball happened, like everything else became blocked out. But if I think about those three guys that you talked about, who were the pioneers who integrated the league, it's not necessarily during the game. It's not being able to eat with the team or maybe not being able to stay at the hotel or the death threats and all of these things. Like, how do you block that out or how do you carry on with your life? You know, we've heard a lot about Jackie Robinson and he was a star, but these other guys really provided an incredible service to everybody who came after them. And it's just absolutely remarkable. It's a remarkable time again, because we're hearkening back to that era where our whole, not only, not only was our world changing because of the war, but our lives were changing because of what was becoming available to us. And you have to say to yourself, which is where leadership comes in, but not the leadership of yourself, but the leadership that has led you, that has given you that confidence to say, I had the confidence because Earl Lloyd had the confidence. Earl Earl Lloyd was my mentor. He didn't give me the confidence by sitting me down and lecturing me about confidence. He gave me the confidence by walking around as a man and conducting himself as such. So that I, as a young man, as a 22-year-old in 1961, wanted to conduct myself like an Earl Lloyd. He became coach of the Detroit Pistons, and if I'm remembering correctly, he tapped you to be assistant coach for the Pistons. Is that right? How did you know you were ready to become an assistant coach in the NBA? How did you know that you are that transition from player to coach was within you? See, that's one of your great questions because there's a saying: "When are you ready? You're never ready. <laughs> you're never ready because you're thinking and you're asking." an academic question. When are you ready? What did you put in? What did you get out? What did you learn? That's not, remember, in the United States of America at that time, I was not on a course to become a coach. I was picked to become a coach. So it was through one's observation of me that I became a coach, not because I said, oh, this is something I want to do. I'm going to build my career towards being a coach in the NBA. Absolutely not. There are very, very, very few coaches that will tell you from day one, day two, day three, they were going to be a coach. I think that's a really, it's a really, really important thing for people of any industry to realizes that you may not be ready or may not think that you're ready for that leadership position. But if somebody does, somebody with the respect and with the knowledge like Earl Lloyd is saying you do belong, you should probably listen. You should probably listen. And I did. I did. Earl told me when I made the selection, is at the same time, they were taking and challenging his dignity by saying, you're no longer the coach. 
So he's sitting there listening to this, and his first reaction was to turn to me and say, you better take this job. You have to take this job. Because that's Earl looking out for me for the next guy. And all I did was fulfill the dreams that Earl and I had as coach and assistant coach. But Earl Lloyd brought me to Detroit twice. He brought me in 1961 as a number one draft pick, and he brought me in 1972 as his assistant coach. So both of the times that I wound up in Detroit, I wound up in Detroit because of Earl Francis Lloyd. And I, that's a debt that can never be repaid. And it can never be repaid because the life lessons that were there, I could never put it in money. I could never pay him for what he put into my life. And so that's what we try to do for our families. I try to do that for my daughters. You know, I try to make sure I set an example that I do things in such a way that they can extract something from that and say, we can do this the right way. We can do this a good way. We can do this to help somebody. Because that's what Dr. King said, always help somebody. Coach Lloyd gets fired. You become the head coach of the Detroit Pistons. When you became the head coach, how did things shift? And how did you think about what your role was? Like, what was your primary goal? Was it to win games, to develop players, which will then win games? Was it to strategize? Like, did you have an idea of what your primary focus should be? My initial focus was to find my players because what my players did, the minute they found out that there had been a change in leadership and that Earl Lloyd was gone and Ray Scott was in, they all went and hung out for the night. They evacuated the hotel. I didn't even know where they were. I mean, and I'm sure they were had gone someplace to talk over the change and so forth and so on. But what happens is you go through this registry that you have in your mind as to how one should conduct themselves. How does a coach become a coach? And every coach, I'll guarantee you, every coach sees it a different way because he only brings to the table who he is. What I saw and what my concern was, the first night that I coached, my concern was, what am I going to say in my halftime speech? And so I was. <laughs> You're preparing that. You haven't even played the first half. <laughs> first half. And I said, because I had remembered as a player that halftime speeches, boy, that's where either you were up or you were down or you were over or you were under. You had to have something that you extrapolated from all of this craziness on the floor to say, this is what's meaningful. This is how we're going to accomplish our goal. And, or this is how we're going to continue to do what we're doing. And I just, I said, I have to write. I actually sat down, Don, and I wrote out halftime speeches when I first <laughs> <laughs> Because I wanted to make sure that I was fair. It was fair for the players, that they were getting something utilized and would help them. And that's what I remembered. And, and I played for good coaches. I played for Dick McGuire, and I played for Al Bianchi, and I played for Earl Lloyd. I played for really good coaches. So you wrote out your halftime speeches. I wrote speeches. out my halftime speeches. You, you wrote out the halftime speeches, and part of that is providing feedback to players. So 
how did you provide feedback? Was it a gentle, was it a yelling or, you know, what, how did you pro provide feedback in a productive way for your players? I, th I think it was some of all of those. The situation is always the boss. And it, it, if we're down, I'm probably going to be stringent. If we're ahead, I'm probably going to be more strategic. But the thing of it is, is you develop in your team other leaders that you can go to. And what those other leaders do, and that was my Dave Bing and my Bob Lanier, what they could do, they could take that message home a lot stronger than I could. And so that made the team better because the team was now communicating among themselves. That's what that's where you always wanted to build your team, in my opinion. You wanted to build your team to be self-reliant. Were you and Dave Bing teammates? Yes, we were roommates. You were roommates, okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, yes. So great. I, I'm glad we clarified that because I wasn't sure. I thought there was a bit of overlap when you were in Detroit. And I wonder, how do you manage going from a player? So you're playing cards with the guys and you have a roommate. So Dave Bing, who you eventually coached, was your roommate on the road. How do you go from being one of the guys to and going out to dinner and doing all the things to being the coach? Now you're at the front of the bus or the front of the plane. All the guys are in the back because that often happens in business, too, is like the top salesperson becomes the sales manager and then no longer hears all of the stuff at lunch that everybody is complaining about. So, you know, what advice do you have for somebody who's going from player to coach? Always learn to listen. That is the greatest thing I think that I was taught by my coaches is to pay attention and listen. What happens, I believe, in listening is you can hear the answer. That to what you may have a question for, a question about, a question to. If you listen, you'll hear it. It doesn't always have to come from between your two ears. And maybe a few times it might, but. On the whole, if you listen, it's somewhere in that communication sphere. And I would always tell people, whether it's business, and I have been successful in business, thank God, but if it's business or basketball, you have to have the ability to listen. In 1974, you were awarded the NBA Coach of the Year Award. How did that make you feel? I remember that like it was yesterday, standing in front of 11,000 people in Cobo Hall. And I was the kid, and I want you to think of this carefully. I was the kid that came to Detroit in 1961 as their number one draft pick. I came to Detroit, Michigan, and no one knew me. Think about this. I went to college, dropped out of college, Played three years in the Eastern League. So no one in the Northeast knew anything about Detroit. And no one in Detroit knew anything about Ray Scott. So when I'm drafted by the Detroit Pistons, my name was Ray Scott. But they added another title to that name, and it was, Who is Ray Scott? <laughs> <laughs> so I came to Detroit. No one knew me. No one. They'd go, Who is this guy? Six foot nine, 220 pounds. He played in the Easter League. He averaged 30 points a game. 
So what? He's not an All-American. This is a spectator sport. We want an All-American in our town to come and represent our team. And they get Ray Scott. In 1974, when I'm standing in the middle of the court, I said to myself, I think they know who I am now. Coach, let's switch gears for a moment because you grew up in a time, and it's chronicled in the book, where the United States had incredible leaders. And it was a very transformative time, a disruptive time. We were further divided than we are now. People will find that hard to believe, but historians will tell you the 1960s were the most divisive time of the 20th century. And so when you were coming of age, you were in your 20s, you got to meet Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You got to meet Malcolm X. You got to meet Muhammad Ali. What did you learn from these leaders? That's incredible. So just full stop right there. You got to yeah. meet them. That's a, that requires a pause. But what did you learn from them? The great thing about the men and women that I was privileged to meet because I was a professional athlete is always, I'm always impressed by their stature. Because I was 6'9". But these men, they were like giants. Dr. King, I'll never forget his handshake. Strongest man. I mean, and I've, I've shook hands with big men. Gene Big Daddy Lipscomb, Roger Brown, big, strong men. I'll never forget Dr. King's handshake. The strength that he had in his being. Muhammad Ali. I'll never forget the delight in his eyes. The man had the greatest eyes I've ever seen. I watched him hug and kiss kids around this country being in his presence. Do you know what a joy-filled person that has to be to pass that on the children? Malcolm X, his intellect, the deep intellect in that man that I saw. The beautiful Aretha Franklin the heart and soul of a queen. She's the lady that came and sang when I was traded from the Detroit Pistons to the Baltimore Bullets. She sang the song for me from the stage of the 20 grand in Detroit, Michigan. She sang, you're going to hear from me. I'm going to dedicate this to Ray Scott. I think on that night in 1974, when I was given the Coach of the Year trophy, and I was just so blessed and fortunate to meet people and listen to them and see their inner quality, that what made a lot of people that I met, what made them great was their character, in their eyes, in their handshake, in their stature, in their loving words. I mean, man, they're just great people. If I'm remembering correctly from the book, you were driving down the street when you saw Muhammad Ali outside of a building and you had known of him or knew him and you just stopped the car. And, and could you talk how he greeted you? And Because I think that's one of the amazing things about him is whenever he walked into a room and met somebody or talked with somebody, he made them feel like they were the most important person in his life. The, the man was incredible. I'm driving down the street, I'm coming home from work for the day, and I look over at the mosque on Boston Boulevard in Detroit. 
And I said, that's the champ. I met him in Philadelphia. And I stopped the car because obviously a crowd is forming. He's coming out of the mosque. He had just changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. And so I, I go, hey, champ, how you doing? And he said, hey, man, I remember you. And I'm going, like, how could you remember? You meet millions of people a day. So he comes over and says, you're the guy with the jump ball. He said, I bet I can out-jump you right now. <laughs> and he's, he's jumping. And I still have the picture in my home of Muhammad Ali jumping, and we are uh, fooling around. And then he says to me, where are you going? I said, well, I'm, I'm going home. I'm going to have my dinner. He said, no, no, no. You come on. You hang out with me. You get in the car. You park your car. Get in my car. You're coming with me. And so he was going to three television studios and a couple of radios to do shows. And I'm riding around with Muhammad Ali the rest of the evening. And I'm like, can you believe this? And he's treating me like I'm his buddy. If you spring ahead to 1972, I'm now a Virginia Squire. And with Virginia Squires are playing the Miami Floridians. And we're down in Florida. Fifth Street Gym, Muhammad Ali's gym. And I'm telling the guys I know Muhammad Ali, and the guys are telling Fatty Taylor, Roland Taylor said, man, you don't know Ali. You don't know him. Get out of here. I said, I do. I'm going to go watch him train. I said, you want to go? They said, yeah. So we all jump in the cab, all these six-foot-five guys, six-foot-three guys, and we go to the Fifth Street Gym. We go downtown Miami. We go up the steps. And I promise you, Don, I walk into the gym. And Angelo Dundee says to Ali as he's toweling him off, he says, isn't that basketball play, you know? And Ali turns around. He looks at me and he says, and Muhammad Ali knocks out Ray Scott. <laughs> and Fatty said, you do know him. I said, yeah, I told you I know him. And he calls me over and he hugs me and he takes me back in his locker room. And, and from then on, I was a made guy. I, I know the guys told that story for the rest of their lives because that's how special he treated me. And I'm going like, how can this man remember people like that? He said to this little pretty Jewish lady, we were down on, in Miami Beach, and this lady said, Mr. Ali, Mr. Ali, may I just get your autograph and get a picture? And he says, absolutely. He said, I remember you. I met you in the concourse the last time I was here. And she said, how could he remember that? And he described what she wore, a, a hat or something she had. And that's just, that amazes me. But Dr. King was the same way. One thing that is interesting about those three leaders, Dr. King, Malcolm X, and Muhammad Ali, is the tremendous sacrifices they made in the name of leadership. So obviously, Malcolm X and Dr. King paid with their lives, but Muhammad Ali essentially committed career suicide, right? By not honoring his draft notice. Now he came back, but he was on the verge of committing career suicide, and he did it out of principle. And that's leadership. That's right. And allowed himself to become a prize fighter, which he was not. He was an athlete. 
He was one of the greatest athletes this world has ever known. And he allowed himself to be punished in the name of his sport when he easily could have walked away and been fine. He's one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. And I say this from the perspective of he called me to come to a barbershop. And in the barbershop, he had a line of children outside of the shop around the corner. He hugged each one of those little girls and he shadow boxed with each one of the little boys. Another leader from that time is President Kennedy. And in the book, he said that President Kennedy's new frontier signaled that African-Americans could be included in the American dream. And I wonder how that was received. Was it received with hope or cynicism or both? I think that as a 22-year-old, that was my first election, 1960, remember, the country's coming out of segregation. And John Fitzgerald Kennedy said, first Catholic president, they said he could never be elected because of that. This man was elected and said, we want to take our Negro brethren forward into our new frontiers with equality. And that just, I'm 22 years old. I'm going into the NBA. And I always said to myself, this never would have happened if this man hadn't taken a courageous step and talked about equality. And and in that tumultuous 60s, you know, when you had Medgar Evers murdered, Malcolm, Martin, John, Bobby, all of these awful murders, but they saw something in America that they believed could be moved forward in the 60s. Where were you on April 4th, 1968, the night Dr. King was killed. I was at Kevin Lockery's, my teammate's house, having dinner with Kevin and his wife. And we had the TV on. And all of a sudden, it was like an explosion. Because remember, I had also lived through the Detroit riots in 67. So now I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, and this is going on. And I just remember saying, we have to go home because we have to get on the phone and start calling people and try to keep them from destroying what we've built up in this nation in the 60s. I thought we were on to something, but then came the Vietnam War. And that kind of tippled the nation because it put on the table another movement. You see, we were already protesting for civil rights. We were protesting for voting rights. Now we're protesting a war. And that just, that, in my opinion, that was a bit much. And we hadn't had any, we hadn't had anything of too much like that since the Roaring Twenties. This has been an amazing conversation. And you took us back to D.C. in 1950. And you've lived through the murder of Emmett Till, 1955, Medgar Evers, 1963, Malcolm X, 1965, Dr. King in 1968. And after Dr. King was killed, Barack Obama is elected president of the United States. Could you ever have imagined as we were going through the 50s and the 60s that you would see that in your lifetime? In my wildest dreams and imaginations, 
I never could have seen Barack Obama envelop this nation as he did. But Barack Obama, in my opinion, brought a character and a decency that we had not been exposed to. And that's when you asked the question earlier, when are you ready? Was he ready? I don't even think he thought he was really even a candidate. <laughs> that's a great point. But he had the he had the capabilities. Well, he had the character. He had the intellect. He had the love in his heart of country. He had all of those things. He still would have had them, but he could put them on display. And when he put them at full display, I like believing in decency and dignity. And I think that he brought both of those things forward to us as a nation. What advice do you have for young people today who may have a hard time imagining a more hopeful future? And I'm thinking about the political polarization and climate change and all of the issues that they're bombarded with every day. You, you went from living in South Philly and seeing a segregated United States. Now we had this African-American president and there's opportunity that you couldn't have imagined as a young person. I try hard to be optimistic. I try to keep that edge of optimism, but I also try to keep the edge of reality because what reality does is it tells me where I must fight the fight. And I never want us as a people, as a nation, I never want us to stop fighting for equality because until we see each other as equals, we will never resolve the issues that are going to continue to come at us. And that's what I really try to and strive to do every day is work as hard as I can to bring about a vision of equality, because that's where we got to get. We have to be able to shake one another's hand, shake a hand if you can, and appreciate each other's human beings. When we can do that, we've won the battle. We've not won the battle. I couldn't agree more. Progress, not perfection. We have progressed incredibly throughout your lifetime, my lifetime, without a doubt. We are not perfect. And as one of my mentors says, there's no finish line to better. There you go. I like that. <laughs> Coach Scott, this has been incredible. I am so delighted we had this conversation. I'm so delighted you shared your time and your wisdom with us. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to Inspire Software for sponsoring this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another interview on the topic of leadership. Thanks to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.